Hey folks, you're listening to To Know the Land, a podcast about connection with the land base, seeking to inspire resilience, resistance, and reverence for the land. This is another show from the Radio Archives. It originally aired April 9th, 2018. It's an interview conducted by my friend Danielle and I with Pinar and So from Queer Nature. You can find out more about their work at queernature.org or they describe their mission on their website as uh, our program envisions and implements ecological awareness and place-based skills as vital and often overlooked parts of the healing and holding of populations who have been marginalized and even represented as unnatural. Our curriculums necessarily go beyond recreation in nature to deep and creative engagement with the natural world to build interspecies alliances and an enduring sense of belonging. They're really awesome folks. A lot of the work they've done, a lot of the things they've written have been really inspiring and really resonating for me. Sadly, when this interview was first published on the radio, I had to cut 14 minutes from the interview. The hope was the interview was going to be transcribed later, but that didn't end up happening. But at least we still have this uh, if you want to find out more about To Know the Land, you can check out the website, toknowtheland.com, or email me at toknowtheland at gmail.com. Hi, folks. You're listening to Know the Land 93.3 FM. My name is Byron. Um, we're here in the studio with my pal, Danielle, and today we are talking to folks from Queer Nature. Uh, Danielle, do you want to say hello? Yeah, so I just wanted to invite y'all to introduce yourselves and your Queer Nature Project. Um, all right, this is So speaking. Um, yeah, uh, my name is Sophia, um, and I also go by So. And um, yeah, I'm one of the two folks who uh, run Queer Nature. And it's basically right now a small kind of Colorado-based project just devoted to creating empowering spaces for uh, LGBTQIA and Two-Spirit folks to um, to basically learn Earth-based skills and be in sort of outdoor spaces. Um, and that's, that's where kind of where it's at right now. We teach day-long workshops and sometimes do overnights, but it, we're still kind of working up to that level of logistical, um, like logistical existence, I guess. Cool. Uh, yeah, so that's... Um, who, that's a little bit about queer nature and just a little bit about myself. I'm, um, I grew up in Abenaki um, territory in, um, in Vermont and I'm a Greek American. My mom's an immigrant and yeah, I identify as, you know, a settler. And so doing this work um, has, you know, some of those themes for me of like how to um, decolonize outdoor education because it's, it can be a very um, sort of a, a space where there's a lot of narratives around conquest and mm-hmm. na- kind of also using nature as sort of a backdrop for our spiritual or awesome experiences. And often there's not a lot of deep, slow connection. And it's more about sort of this individualistic self-actualization. So I, I think about those things a lot. Um, yeah, I think that's all about myself for now and I'll, I'll pass it on to Pinar. Cool, thanks. Hi, 
Okay. Uh, yeah, my name is Tanar Sinopoulos Lloyd, and um, yeah, I want to introduce my ancestors. Um, my master lineage is Wonka, as well as um, Chinese, and my pastoral lineage is Turkish, um, which is actually where I grew up for half of my childhood. Um, and I also want to name um, this one of my more than human ancestors. Um, who goes by the name Hakapsua, and um, they're a creep on Yavapai and Apache territories. So it's really informed who I am and how I am accountable as a person. Um, and yeah, and so yeah, I'm one of the co-founders, like so saying, of Clear Nature as well. And I'm an indigenous um, ancestral skills practitioner and mentor. Um, which happens to be rare. So if you're listening and if you're that, like an indigenous ancestral skills mentor, hit me up. (laughs) (laughs) And lastly, I'm wanting to say that we're on Arapaho, Cheyenne, and Ute territories right now, which is so-called Boulder, Colorado area. Awesome. Thank you. Um, Yeah, so like, so I think you were saying that often things under the umbrella of like so-called outdoor education or earth skills or nature connection can skew towards like a really white, able-bodied, cis, straight, masculine kind of demographic. And I wanted to know um, how queer nature helps interrupt that. That's a good question. Um, Well, one thing that we do right now um, with, we partner with a local nonprofit called Women's Wilderness and we um, do that partially because they, you know, they're friends of ours, and we're really open to collaboration. And we also, um, they're sort of operating as like a fiscal sponsor because Queer Nature is just an LLC and not um, technically a nonprofit yet. That may happen in the future. And so, one thing that's been exciting is we have collaborated with them on some um, grants that we get to, to run these sort of day-long workshops that we do um, in in this area, in the Boulder, Denver area. And we are pretty committed to having, to those being really financially accessible. So they're only $10 to register and they're usually like a six hour workshop typically. Um, and then there's always like a suggested donation, but that's, that's one way that we, one angle that we are trying to sort of address accessibility issues because um, nowadays it's interesting, like we're in this, cultural space where sort of survive, so-called survival skills have become really kind of like sexy. Like, I don't like yeah. using that, but kind of in like a, with a quotations way, do you know what I mean? And Absolutely. so there's like, and afraid and like survivor man and all this stuff. And um, yeah, and a lot of, so there, there has been, because of the, the popularity of those shows, which are, you know, pretty po- problematic because they're very, they often really stress this individualistic pioneer mentality of like, you know, um, that, that often are also very displaced from what a lot of land-based people and including our, our own like Paleolithic ancestors, even as, as white people or as anyone like would have actually been like, you know, naked and afraid is a situation where you're dropped like with no clothes in the middle of a place you don't even know. And that, that sort of, so-called survivalism mm-hmm. is just something that would have really never happened to many of our ancestors mm-hmm. or to land people today. Yeah. Um, so that's something we, we, we want to interrupt. And just by really stressing relationship and really like deep 
sustained relationship with place and just getting to know who lives in our backyard and, you know, not even necessarily knowing their scientific names because that can, like, we also kind of want to interrupt the sort of scientism that can pervade nature, like naturalist studies, but just like getting to know their, the songs of the birds that live in your backyard. And, and so that sort of sustained and deep relationship to place is really important. And to sort of loop back to what I sort of what I was originally talking about with the financial accessibility, I guess one of my points of bringing up the sort of the geist of survival skills in pop culture is that consequently a lot of those skills um, to learn them have become very expensive and it's kind of like a boutique thing. You know, it's like, oh, like, you know, going to the survival skills school and taking this class on how to make friction fire or how to, you know, um, how to flint nap or something. And these classes um, can be extremely expensive. And one of our biggest pieces of feedback just living and operating in these social and professional worlds has been these are just really inaccessible to me as a you know queer person of color or as like a queer person or as a person who has um is differently abled and so yeah that was a, that's been a big thing um that we've that we've tried to go into and address that's great. We're nodding our heads and snapping our yeah, fingers yeah. over here. Um, I work at a at an outdoor education school, the Guelph Outdoor School, and I'm often trying to instill that with the kids there that we work with, and make sure that like we're recognizing new ways of having, or maybe not new. They're not new. Old ways of having relationships with the land that aren't just about individualistic behaviors. Like, if you were naked and afraid, it's because something terrible happened to your community or you did something terrible to your community. You would right. never be out there alone. Yeah. We, we've stopped really working on bow drills and working on buddy drills now to, like, remind everybody, you know, we do this together. This is how community is built. So I appreciate that you said that a lot. Um, that kind of makes me think of something uh, on your website. You both talk about um, the ecology of belonging, and I wanted to ask you what you meant by that and how that might connect to queerness or indigeneity or two, two spiritedness. Yeah, um, this is Tanar speaking, and um, I mean it's it's hard for me to share just theoretical, so I'm just going to share a bit about my story. Um, Great. And, um, uh, yeah, so, and I'm also just kind of like a storytelling brain or person. That's lovely. Um, but yeah, I just, I I would say that, that a lot of that, um, ecology of belonging comes, you know, a lot of it emerged actually in relationship between me and so, and our own individual experiences before meeting each other, um, and our, you know, intergenerational experiences as well. And, um. I would say that a big part of the ecology of belonging is really inspired in my experience by not like having a narrative of not belonging, especially around like um, being um, immersed in white supremacy and settler colonialism um, and like as an indigenous queer and non-binary person who also is neurodivergent. Um, and so just having this narrative pushed on me in, um, I guess in, um, human, human centric or like human centric context or like in cities or 
you know, in school or different kinds of, in, of institutions. Um, you know, I just felt like I was very systemically or sy- systematically and systemically pushed out um, of places, um, even though, you know, arguably, like, that's what settler colonialism does to indigeneity is pushing, like, con- like you know, perpetuating the severance of place um, and of um, who people who people are um, in relationship to place. Um, so I, for me, a lot of the ecology of belonging is really inspired by kind of the um, inseparable experience of being indigenous and queer um, at the same time, um, which is because I am not a fraction and <laughs> many things all in one body. Um, and so, and one of the ways that that was inspired in me was, you know, I in order to, you know, take a breath away from white supremacy and settler colonialism and the heteropatriarchy, I um, would go and, like, you know, I actually grew up in the city, so I would just hang out by the trees and chill with the squirrels and the pigeons and, like, and like be in the rain and um, look at the fall, um, fall leaves on the ground and um, would feel, like, a deep sense of belonging to place. And like that I would never like that I never felt otherwise and other human spaces that again were really per- like that were infused with white supremacy um, and not necessarily I grew up in like the uh, so-called Bay Area so like Ohlone territory where you know you know quote-unquote liberal and like I didn't grow up necessarily in like a really yeah other places where white supremacy looks really intensely direct um, but it's more infused on the landscape um, where I grew up. Um, so, with through my relationships with a more than human community, I would say um, I was really, I started really remembering who I was, um, and especially in deep relationship with, um, you know, trees and creeks and um, the birds, as I was saying, with, um, you know, the bird songs. And in a lot of ways, I felt like there was this deep sense of, like, falling in love that was happening with um, my more-than-human community. And um, and it actually was... It actually initiated a lot of rage, um, too. And it's not, you know, just, like, you know, sparkles and we're all one kind of love, but, like, the rageful kind of love that's incredibly beautiful and vital and important. Um, and... I would say kind of the combination of, like, rage, grief, um, love, like, deep, deep love of place um, informed, um, yeah, the ecology of belonging um, and, like, finding my way of belonging to, um, a, um, I guess, yeah, Turtle Island and so-called, you know, the United States as a as a person in my body. Um, and yeah, and to me that really informed queer nature in the sense that I feel like, you know, queer, queers and especially QT BIPOC people, um, really struggle with that same, maybe in a different way, of course, like everyone has their own unique story of like not belonging or being, um, really othered violently or in a really chronic and systemic way or both, um, most likely both. Um, and so queer nature has this kind of, I guess we're really inspired to really, um, 
inspire relationship with the more than community who mirrors um, a sense of radical belonging. Um, And specifically, you know, I want to thank a lot of the pigeons and the squirrels and all the beings who, like, beautifully, and rats, (laughs) who beautifully um, adapted and continue to adapt to the impacts of settler colonialism and gentrification and, like, um, and, yeah, and those are, in part, um, a lot of the beings who really inspire that those conversations around belonging and really expand it beyond, like, the idea of human centricism, which so often queerness and queer community really revolves around, um, which is beautiful in its own way, but also limiting. Totally, yeah. Yeah, and I think just this is so, just to add a little bit to that, I think that there can be this narrative in some nature-based philosophies where it's like, oh, every, you know, every animal has their purpose and their place, and like, in some senses, I agree with that, but I also think it needs to be a little bit more radicalized and, like, cleared a little bit, because it's like, you know, these these sort of do- so-called domiciliated anim- animals, non-human animals, or animals that have adapted to, you know, situations of modernization and urban urbanization um, and civilization, even, even, you know, before, even, you know, hundreds of years ago, like, coyotes were hanging out at the edges of Aztec cities. So it's not necessarily a new thing, but but also just the idea that, that um, this idea of sort of futurism or queer futurism or, um, you know, figuring out and creating narratives for how adaptation and new possibilities can be possible, like the fact that, you know, different types of mushrooms have, you know, evolved to be able to break down hydrocarbons or like, you know, some types of worms can, you know, digest and break down heavy metals and things like that, but where there's like, there's actually this notion of the earth as this kind of self-reorganizing Rubik's cube that just keeps, you know, creating new things. And um, I don't know, like, I, I think that we try to bring that into because there can sort of be a, this a, a way of like, I don't know, a way of, like, almost placating um, with, with the narrative that, like, oh, everything has its place and has its purpose, and sometimes that total, doesn't totally serve, um, you know, um, minority and marginalized identities, so trying to sort of queer that a little bit. I don't know if that made sense, but... I think it did, yeah. Maybe not necessarily on that note, but um, I'm thinking about your work with, um, like, offering rites of passage for queer and two-spirit folks, and I wondered if you could say a little bit more about that and why that's such, it seems like that's such a big focus in your work. Yeah, um, this is so speaking, and I can begin to answer that. Um, with part of our our interest, we have a great interest in rites of passage, or just in it, the, the process of initiation and of um, sort of community-based witnessing and creating space for um, for seeing who's, who someone is and what their role could be in their community. And also just, yeah, queering that as well. And we don't, right now, as as queer nature, sort of as that entity, we don't necessarily offer um, any sort of pro ourselves, although we have sort of as, you know, we both work as wilderness guides, sort of as contractors with other organizations. So we, we have been involved in various rites of passage programs with other organizations, um, and our, our ultimate goal is for queer nature, for us to 
to offer something. Um, although right now we're, we've mainly been focusing on the programs that where it's basically reskilling or learning learning various earth-based crafts or mm-hmm. ancestral skills. Um, but that sort of ties into what a bit of our vision is around rites of passage. Um, you know, having worked a bit in the sort of rites of passage world, you know, there's there's a lot that can be said about that and a lot that is problematic around, you know, issues of cultural appropriation and and also just a general disconnection from between experiences that people can have on during transformative, you know, nature-based programs and then the integration of those experiences into their lives outside of that program. And, um, I mean, one thing that we really want to work towards and sort of feel that we're building towards with our curriculum right now is actually ancestral skills as rites of passage, Um, you know, and what this kind of comes from both of our separate and also together experiences of um, learning ancestral earth-based skills, you know, things like making friction fires, um, you know, or learning edible and medicinal plants or, you know, um, having learning um, around the aspects of the sacred hunt and hunting, um, things like that. And and often in those, spa- those spaces can be very sort of, I guess, secular in a sense in, in a lot of mainstream culture. And um, I think aspects of that can be good because some spaces where you learn survival skills, it's like it, it can sometimes be sort of suffocating to, for people to like impose some sort of um, spiritual or ideological view because often those in, in these spaces and in, in these cultural spaces end up being culturally appropriative. Mm-hmm. Um, but that said, like we both have had this really powerful experience of as we learn those skills, just it being very affirming on all these levels that definitely include spiritual and sort of existential and um, all these different levels, and but also as queer people and um, as people with different intersectional identities. And so that that really stuck out to, to both of us in different ways on our own journeys. And then when Pinar and I met, there was like this really rich confluence of like, yeah, like, like let's really call this out as initiation because mm. we don't we you know and, and not like it not like it needs a very heavy hand it, like I feel like when you when you are learning these ancestral skills in queer spaces it requires a very light touch to to really like bring in the idea that we are um, that this is sort of an initiation and and sort of a rite of passage that's not just individual but that's also cultural mm. um, and also sort of queer too because doing that in the queer space and realizing all these parallels about um about our own how as queer people we we sort of are survivalists um or you know i hear i hear Kenar talk about like as a queer indigenous person like they are like they have so many sort of survival skills that are on energetic and emotional and spiritual levels um and so really bringing that in strongly and just honoring that and creating story around that together, which I think is a really big part of rites of passage. And I think in in a lot of new agey contexts, initiation can become very individualized and it's like, oh, it's like the hero's journey, you know. Um, but really like trying to also, you know, subvert that narrative by this idea of like sort of us creating a story as who we are as queer 
queer Earth-connected folks, or maybe who how um, how the Earth is dreaming through us, um, and creating that story, and then going back into the quote-unquote world. Not that there are two worlds, but sometimes you have sort of make that distinction language-wise. Going back to our our homes and lives, and um, being able to have that story um, and carry that story with us, and I sort I think the effects of that are very kind of non-linear and emergent and hard to sort of quantify. <laughs> but for sure, you... for sure. And I think that like in nature connection work, it becomes apparent so immediately just how that kind of whatever if you want to call it magic or spirituality, that connection is so imminent when once you start practicing, and I think. Yeah, sometimes like we try to find narratives to kind of explain it or articulate it. Um, but like you said, like those can be really individualized and like very Joseph Campbell and, you know, or whatever. And I'm wondering, do you, can you think of like, are there any fairy tales or stories from your own lineages that you that you use to help reflect those concepts of what like a, an initiatory experience might look like for queer folks? Yeah, that's a really uh, great question. Um, Ah, yeah, that, that brings up a lot of, like, <laughs> it brings up a lot of grief and rage to, like, know that there isn't a lot of those stories out there, or, you know, like, there are, but that they're not really amplified or highlighted um, in terms of, like, the myths of queerness. Um, and I would say that I don't necessarily have, like, stories or fairy tales, but more me uncovering my own lineage, my queer lineage from my, um, from my Wonka, um, Andean side, and, um, and they're more me putting together stories, mm-hmm. um, than actually, like, reading stories, um, and I would say that a lot of my, my experiences with, um, my ecological kin, um, like we're recreating stories by like being in relationship with one another and I would say that that's very true with like you know lichen and like cryptobiotic soil in particular and like creeks and rivers for me um and that there's like a a beautiful deep reflection of like queerness and emergence and um um and you know essentially queerness as a dream of the earth um I would say that we're Although there are definitely, like we are, a lot of queer um, stories out there of, like, of what you're asking, like, fairy tales um, or, um, yeah, like, mythical stories, um, I think that we're also, like, making them, um, too, right now, Mm -hmm. and that that's always the case with any story in some ways, but um, I would say it's particularly true for um, marginalized communities. who have, you know, very directly been targeted and um, can continue to be targeted every day. Um, And, like, essentially having their... It's, like, it's almost like, um, yeah, like this war on, like, erasing mythos and only having one mythos, which is, like, the project of settler colonialism. Um, So, yeah, I just want to also like uplift and you know um amplify the folks who are out there living their lives right now and um that you know your stories and your survival stories and your like resilient stories are 
these stories that are becoming, um, that are going to inform many other people, like human or more than human, um, even if it's not verbally shared, it's going to mm-hmm. still live in on the on the planet and on the earth, is what I believe, at least. Um, that's the cosmology that I live with. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the things that I also want to share regarding rites of passage is I also feel like one thing that was actually a theme with a couple of the um, queer rites of passage that we helped with um, last summer was there were a lot of folks that were really stepping into, like, um, feeling... And these are like white queer folk um, who are really, um, yeah, going onto the land, feeling into what it's like being a, or yeah, I guess exploring being a settler in terms of like actually claiming it, even though you know it's you know it's really intense to claim that, right? Mm-hmm. But like as someone who wants to like remediate settler colonialism, like what they felt like they needed to do was really fully step into that and not that they're going to perpetuate settler behaviors, but like really lean into that and like um, give it to the land as an offering as like, how do I actually become accountable if I like really um, acknowledge that I am a, like fully acknowledge that I'm a settler. Um, I don't know what fully acknowledging being a settler looks like. It's just, it differs for each person, obviously, but I would say that that was one of the most beautiful things that I saw um, as like a parallel, some parallel stories that were happening on the land at different at different times um, of the summer and the fall, was seeing that folks were um, really trying to, um, yeah, engage with like interspecies accountability um, as well as like accountability within our own species as well. Um, so also wanting to uplift that too because I feel like that's so usually not talked about in rites of passage um, mm. and you know I, I would say like in rites of passage work there's a lot of like you know the whole binary of like oh well you know the, this is the masculine you know the archetypes of the masculine and the feminine and it can be really uh, you know um, yeah just incomplete mm-hmm. and also inadvertently harmful to like really perpetuate that binary and um, and I think a really big importance of queer rights of passage is to continue to disrupt that binary because that binary is like, I mean, if we want to talk about new, that's a new bi- that's new. Like <laughs> is like the binary, and like I mean, what's really ancient is like, and um, is yeah, the non-binary or beyond the binary. Um, so yeah, just I also wanted to mention that with the, how it is really integral to uplift queer rights of passage to, um, yeah, continue remediating um, the different, like, you know, settler colonialism, but also cis-heteropatriarchy and the way that it shows up as um, cis-sexism and the binary. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You just, really. you just answered two questions that I was going to ask you with that. So thank you. Um, I didn't have to ask. In the beginning, someone said uh, um, something about like sort of experiencing the world and having this sense of belonging to place. And I wanted to ask you how folks who live in cities can cultivate that, because I think often we think about nature connection or like belonging to the land, and we think about like these beautiful sort of pristine wilderness preserves or what have you. 
um, which is a deeply problematic construct in and of itself. But I'm wondering, like, how if for folks living in cities or maybe who don't feel like they have a lot of access to nature or for folks with accessibility um, concerns or whatever, like, what are ways that we can kind of harness that sense of belonging to place and that sense of nature connection in cities or urban areas? Yeah, I mean, that's such a great question. And this is so speaking, again, on I'll just answer something that really comes to mind for me, which is that cities are actually, and urban spaces are actually, like, prime areas for, for like, observing birds, especially mm-hmm. song. Um, yeah, I, I, and birds, bird behavior and sort of bird language is such a potent inroad into really deep nature connection and also just just connection in general um maybe even taking out the nature because you know i feel like sometimes that that does create this dichotomy of like nature and like what what is not nature you know Mm, totally Um, i I would say really it's a type of cultural connection a type of non-human culture um but also birds and and one, one other reason that i think connecting with birds in cities um especially for folks who are queer and um in part of like other marginalized identities like i think that birds can be really amazing allies for organizing and sort of um the work of resisting um oppressive structures and i say that is that you know there's there's a lot of sort of scientific research coming out lately that is actually like just reaffirming stuff that indigenous science has like always known and relied upon for for sort of cultural survivance but basically this idea that birds are sort of this world of this sort of twitter feed that overlays the whole you know the whole landscape and they um they are amazingly adept at communicating with each other across species and sending signals very quickly and passing along signals very quickly um, to each other about threats, you know, whether that's an aerial predator or, you know, a house cat, you know, prowling down an alleyway, um, you know, or something like a hawk. Hawks and raptors actually really love to hunt in cities um, because, you know, they'll, they'll sort of perch on stoplights, traffic lights, and um, wait for cars to start driving, and then they'll actually, like, creep behind cars in order to, like, kind of cloak themselves so that the little songbirds in the trees won't see them until it's too late. Mm-hmm. So there's this whole um, there's this whole realm of sort of urban ecology and all these relationships being created by um, being made possible by urban spaces and by the really brilliant adaptive strategies of birds in particular um, to be in those spaces and to learn to survive in those spaces that I feel like it's just like when I'm in a city that's what I tap into is you know songbirds and also um, the pit like pigeons and um, and occasionally you know I'll see birds of prey but often it's just like the little sparrows and house finches and stuff like that um, and I would I would just really like recommend folks to to be curious about who their songbird neighbors are who live outside their window or in the park, if there's a park nearby where you live, or any sort of waterway. Um, and yeah, they can be really amazing teachers for, for awareness stuff and how to uh, be more be more observant and also tap into their powers of observation as well um, in order to 
to you know perceive things that are there because they're they're kind of in this constant um, adaptive sort of process of, of survival and of preserving their life forces um, like in a way that that is really that is really quite quite brilliant and apparent um, so that's something that I would point to and I don't know if Pinar if you have something else to add around that um, yeah so I guess one thing that I would add to that is um, to me you know nature connection is um, kind of inextricable to or it's it's the same as like you know learning indigenous history as well like to me it's really it can be um, I, there's this narrative that there's like natural history and then there's like cultural history and again it kind of like perpetuates that divide between nature and human um, which I think is uh, a tactic of settler colonialism um, to again sever from place um, so I would also invite folks to um, learn the indigenous histories of um, the place that you're on, um, you're at, um, and you know that. And if you are also native to that place, you know that that could be a different question for you since you already know that answer. But just like learning more deeply about the mythos of place, um, if that is accessible to you, I know that sometimes it's hard to find access to that. Um, and um, to me, that's been like a really big part of my nature connection journey. Is like. I guess, you know, uh, when I think about nature connection and the world of nature, like the field of, like, nature connection, there's so often so little um, representation of um, or acknowledgement of being on indigenous territories. And to me, like, if we'd stop at just, like, the more-than-human community, I think, you know, that, that can be a very, um, I don't know, like a shallow version of nature connection mm-hmm. rather than really going into you know, the complexities and the grief and the, you know, and the rage and all the complex emotions that comes with connection um, or the severance of connection. So, yeah, inviting folks to get curious about that. Um, and um, and I think that that will also lead into, you know, connection with the more-than-human community as well and maybe inform your relationship with the more-than-human community Um and, you know, as um, a person who grew up in cities, I actually didn't get, you know, quote-unquote, into, like, the outdoor world, whatever that means, <laughs> like, after I was, like, 20. Um, so I um, I feel you, and I, um, yeah, I mean, I feel like, you know, as so was beautifully said with the bird language, you know, like, re- being able to have a practice of recognizing patterns or just observing you know, like, if you're, like, a people watcher, like, bird, um, like, observing bird language is, like, the same as people watching except with birds. <laughs> and, um, and I, you know, um, and also there's other creatures out there, too, that you can observe their patterns of, um, you know, like, maybe there's, like, a stray cat around or, you know, a cat around your neighborhood that you can watch and see how their presence impacts every, like, the birds around or, like, the mice or the squirrel, like, how does the squirrel react to um, the dog that's, like, you know, your neighbor's dog or whatnot, and so there's all these different opportunities of, like, you know, tracking the weather if you're into, like, gazing at the sky, Um, and, you know, and for me, a a big part of my nature connection as a city person um, 
was, you know, with water and just being around water and also um, that through rain or through, like, rivers and creeks or lakes um, or, like, ponds, like, little city ponds um, and just observing, you know, the beings out there um, and all the different activity that can happen there. So, yeah, there's a lot of different gateways for sure. And, um, yeah, and I'm excited to hear if there's any stories that come back from your... um, the people, the folks who are listening, like what you observe out there. Totally. And, and yeah, just to add a piece on that, because something Panar said really inspired me, which is that like just focusing on tracking patterns. Um, and I know on our website, it talks about how we, you know, we promote ecological literacy. And sometimes I kind of cringe at that phrase, even though I wrote it, <laughs> because I feel like literate, oh, what is literacy, you know, um, uh, sort of what what is that notion? And I feel like sometimes there can be this notion of like oh it's like very technical and you have to learn all this terminology and it's um and there's something sort of classist about that term but i guess what when we really dive into what is ecological literacy to us really it's not it's not being able to name that species like in their like you know latin scientific name or whatever it's it's actually being able to um really observe relationships um no matter what those beings are called and also, you know, we, we always invite folks to um, be curious about learning indigenous, like, place-based names of beings, um, and that's, that's definitely can be a really beautiful practice, but also just paying attention to relationships, even if it's just, even if it's people watching on, like, you know, a city sidewalk, um, because that will teach you about ecology, and you don't have to have any technical training or special training to observe patterns and relationships because that's what we do all the time of people and that's also what like a lot of folks do who who are trauma survivors you know um, a lot of folks who are who get discriminated against in spaces where where they are and who folks whose whose bodies like by virtue of the color of their skin are disrupting spaces and, and getting all these projections upon them like all of those people and all of like those people are constantly having to track and um, pick up on patterns and relationships and that to us is such like there's a huge obviously wound in that and when we sort of turn that into this realm of of ecological sort of learning and knowing and being in relationship it kind of can turn it there's this side of it that can be this brilliant gift that that is just something that we really want to honor so so just kind of also honoring the the survival skills that all our like peers in cities like already have you know like in their bodies just by virtue of being who they are yeah by virtue of surviving thanks so much for reframing survival skills that way that's really Mm -hmm. i think that's such a yeah a, a powerful powerful statement yeah um we're almost up for the hour, and I don't want to hold you all longer than we said we would. Is there anything that you'd like to say to finalize with or just to, to wrap in it closing? up? In closing? Hmm. Let's see. Um, well, this is so speaking. I, I can circle back to one thing that I sort of put this mental bookmark in that um, that might be helpful to say when, when you all were asking about rites of passage and sort of storying queerness in this mythic way. 
and um, Pinar spoke to this beautifully, and I, it, I, it also brought up for me a project that we've sort of been engaged in. Um, I don't know how much of a conclusion this is going to be, but it could also just be an open invitation because it's something that we're, it's sort of a sacred set of questions for us um, around just doing research, um, which can look a lot of different ways, including like oral history and talking to people and also sort of, you know, reading books and um, using literary resources, but just these questions about um, non-Western and also historical, like, roles that gender diverse and queer, sort of queer people held in their communities. And we, we, we're careful around this topic because we don't necessarily want to, like, take any certain cultural example that's not our own and uphold it as, like, oh, like, look at what this culture thought of queer people mm-hmm. and blah, 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 and sort of idolize that, because I think that can be really kind of problematic and tricky. But I guess acknowledging that in our own um, research into our own ancestries, like my, my ancestry being um, sort of Northern European and Greek and Pinar's <clears throat> ancestry being Turkish and <clears throat> Wonka Andean, um, we have noticed that there are these cultural patterns of um, queer folks, and I sort of use the word queer anachronistically, but I guess one would say, like, you know, gender diverse folks or people who are non-binary in some way, um, having special roles in their communities, um, you know, around, that that often related to transitions and thresholds. Like, Mm -hmm. you know, we've had people come to us who've who've said, like, you know, in my culture, queer people were often marriage counselors or you know, undertakers or um, midwives, people. And one thing we notice is that a lot of these roles are related to, to transitions and to liminal spaces. And, mm-hmm. you know, and there's been such a rich um, storying that I've witnessed with Tanar doing some of their ancestral recovery work around um, Andean third gender people um, who are called Kwari Warmies, who, um, who were one of the first peoples to be targeted by the conquistadors, the Spanish conquistadors when they arrived in the Andes, and these were people who basically were um, story holders and ceremonialists who helped um, who helped basically hold together um, a lot of the culture in a lot of ways, and also were a representation of of um, of sort of the in between and, and the androgynous third space that brings together the binary and creates wholeness and. I've just been super inspired by that, and I ended up doing some research into my own lineages, particularly Greek, um, sort of Byzantine and ancient Greek culture. And, and you know, what I discovered there is, is that there, there were, you know, culturally circumscribed roles for people who are gender diverse or non-binary or third gender. Um, and they did exist in those cultures, but in my lineage, um, those people were often basically enslaved and be- became, basically they were very commodified by, um, you know, during the Byzantine Empire um, per- in particular, um, but they existed. And the fact that they existed gives me some hope, um, but there's also a lot of grief with it. And that's been a big part of my um, journey as a white person doing a lot of this ancestral reskilling, which naturally brings up grief and I think that it's it's so important to do that work as, as white people um, and go into that grief and not shy away from it so I think that might be a good point for me to end on. Mm. 
yeah, it's a whole other conversation. I wish we had a million more hours, and I would love to hear more totally. from you on that. But yeah, in my own life and my own work, that's something that comes up a lot, I think, for you too, mm-hmm. Byron. Mm-hmm. Um, Pinar, did you want to add anything else as well? Yeah, I did. I um, I did want to share a little bit about what So brought up regarding the Kwari Warmi um, folks, um, and. I just wanted to share a bit about the cosmology in which, um, at least the mythol- the mythos of how Kwariwarmis um, originated, and um, essentially, from what I have gathered, which has only been the last couple couple years that I've um, been able to access this knowledge, even though I've been searching for years and wasn't able to find anything until just recently, and. Um, yeah, and so in the Inca culture, um, there was something, there's a word in um, Quechua called Pachacuti, which essentially means like um, a cataclysmic change um, that specifically to the culture, um, like the Inca culture in particular. And the story goes that um, when the first Pachacuti happened to the Incan culture, the Incan society. Um, there was, like, this huge liminal space of unknowing of, like, okay, what are we going to do? And, you know, just, like, this place of mystery, essentially, and kind of fear of, like, kind of like an oh shit moment as a culture. <laughs> and um, this, just briefly, the story of the origin of the Kwariwarmi is that there is um, this um, deity, this mountain deity that's a jaguar, um, Chinchui Chinchai, who is dual gendered and um, is a protector of these um, gender people, Kwariwarmi, um, and kind of initiated the Kwariwarmi people to come um, into the culture, even though, you know, arguably we've always existed, but this is the origin story. <laughs> and um, and um, so, at least the role of Kwariwarmi in particular was really initiated of, like, um, the particular role of, like, holding the liminal space and being, like so was saying, like, the cultural story holders and um, being able to, hold, like, um, hold the culture or support the culture kind of in a, you know, in, um, in like, a hospice-slash-midwife role of, like, okay, we're, something is dying and something new is bor- being born simultaneously and in that space of them of that overlap is where the um the quarry warmies role is um essentially and um yeah so that really i would say that that you know there's more to it than that but that's like the essence and that really informs kind of my cosmology of seeing queerness and i don't try to like create an absolute of like, oh, all queerness's role is to hold this space, <laughs> you know. Mm-hmm. But um, I would say that I can't help but be informed by that cosmology, um, especially because in Andean culture, as so mentioned, the um, the creative life force or the creative force is androgynous um, and is the third space. And um, so, yeah, it's in my bones. And so I'm going to be, I walk through my life in that way. Um, so I guess, yeah, I just wanted to bring that in because it just, it, it's so informed the work that we do at Queer Nature and kind of, you know, coming back to 
emergence and like that queerness is like an emergence of um the earth and has always been and we've always existed um we're not we're nothing we're not new like this whole you know non-binary thing how people say that it's new um to me it's you know we often talk about how that's a narrative and a strategy of settler colonialism to erase um this really necessary and dangerous like um uh people um and roles that are um hopefully to remediate the trauma the big cultural traumas that are happening on this um on this land Thank you. Yeah, thank you both so much. And I think that's a, kind of a neat place to end with the idea that we all are bringing our ancestors into our nature connection work and into all the relationships that we have on, mm. on this land. Um, mm. As a settler here, Byron and I are both settlers here doing um, mm. nature connection work and both queer identified. Um, and yeah, just this, that that our ancestors are, are of us and among us as, mm. as we do this. Yeah, I love that. Thank you. That That's like such a beautiful ending that we could never have planned, but the ancestors, <laughs> I think, probably had it, had it figured out or something. <laughs> they, they're smart like that sometimes. Yeah, yeah um, it's good to talk to you both. Thank you. Yeah, thank you so much for your time and for... Uh, your brains and your words. We really, really appreciate it. And all the work you do. I mean, as both of us work in this field, learning from other people when we don't have our, like you said, we don't have our own mentors to, how do we discuss decolonization? How do we discuss queerness in these fields when these fields are totally dominated by a very different narrative? So to hear how other people are doing it offers ideas and support and stories that are inspiring and also connecting. It re reminds us, you know, we're not alone in what we want to talk about and when we're out in the woods with each other. Yeah, you too as well. Thanks and um, yeah, lots of uh, lots of solidarity and we'll talk soon. Okay, sounds okay. great. Bye for now. Bye bye.
Thank you.